It's no secret that living and practicing our Catholic faith in the modern world is not easy. On the one hand, of course, it was never meant to be easy. In fact, Jesus prepared us for this. He said, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. But there are different kinds of difficulties. The kind Jesus speaks of is inevitable. It comes from trying to be holy in a world that, in a manner of speaking, continues to crucify our Savior. As Christ said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a mountaintop cannot be hidden. If we truly shine with the light of Christ, then inevitably we will become targets of the evil one who commands the children of this world. That's been the experience of all the saints. So Jesus warns his followers, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. But there's another kind of difficulty that is more self-imposed that many of us will fall victim to. It comes from a failure of prudence. As the Catechism says, prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. Today's Gospel reading, I think, is a good example of Jesus giving his followers some lessons in prudence. Now, of course, it's the case that scriptural scriptural passages can be read on any number of levels. I've heard many good interpretations of Christ's sending of the 72 disciples two by two. But the tendency sometimes is to spiritualize the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples, making them into mere metaphors for more abstract theological concepts. But we must remember that Christ is our true shepherd. He is the perfect image of our heavenly father. No good father would ever be content to teach his children merely the truth without also giving them the practical instructions that they would need to live the truth in the world that they would encounter. And so it is sometimes that we miss or ignore as historical detail only the practical advice that Jesus gave to his disciples. Advice that properly understood applies as much to us in this day trying to live out our Catholic faith in a hostile world. And just to add a note of urgency, a world that I fear fear is only going to become more hostile in the near term. The first thing we noticed about the sending of the disciples is that Jesus sends them out in pairs. This points to the fundamentally communal nature of our Catholic faith. Yes, we are called individually by baptism. We are judged at the end of time for our own sins, not for the sins of others. But at the same time, our faith is meant to draw us into closer communion with others. And that communion is an indispensable part of nurturing our faith one that we ignore at our own peril. For most people, the closest company they keep is their immediate family. So the Catechism tells us the family is the original cell of social life. It is the natural society in which husband and wife are called to give themselves in love and in the gift of life. The family is the community which, from childhood, one can learn moral values and begin to honor God. It's why even our Savior, Jesus Christ, immaculately conceived or miraculously conceived though he was, still came to us through the Holy Family, because family life itself is a sign of the new covenant. 
A person's life of faith suffers when their family suffers division, whether that division is about faith or for some other reason. It's why our church teaches that interfaith marriages, while not prohibited, ought to be entered into only after especially careful discernment. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Mary Eberstadt, who wrote a book that I commend to you, How the West Really Lost God. Her thesis is that the loss of family bronze and a growth in divorce, single parenthood, and related issues in the modern West is not so much caused by a weakening of faith in society. Rather, it's the rise of these social problems first that has the effect of then weakening people's faith in the practice of religion. It's a complex interrelationship, of course, but it makes sense when we consider the teachings of the Apostle Paul that marriage, which is the foundation of the family, gives to us the proper image of Christ and his church. But also that the nuptial image of Christ and his church is meant to inform the lives of husbands and wives. The life of faith drives the family, and the family drives the life of faith. It's why the church teaches that the family is the domestic church, and the church herself is founded not on individuals, but on the communion of families. Families are our greatest strength and resource in persevering in the faith. But it's also the case that we keep company beyond our family, in our friends and associates. Unlike family arrangements, which are fixed beyond our control, here we exercise some choice, and it's here that many Catholics falter. There's an old expression, tell me who your friends are, and I will tell you who you are. It's the sad case that many people, whether single or married, struggle to practice and maintain their Catholic faith. And all you would have to do to diagnose their problem would be to see who it was that they spend their time with. If one doesn't deliberately cultivate good Catholic friends and companions, one can hardly hope to remain strong in their Christian faith. This is why Jesus sent his disciples two by two, because he knew that even they, who took their commission directly from him, would still need the support of a companion to endure the slings and arrows of their missionary journey. Now notice what Jesus says next. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandal. Now this might seem a contradiction to the message of prudence that I talked about earlier. Is Jesus asking his disciples to simply abandon themselves to providence and carry no practical resources for their journey? Well, yes and no. We certainly have to trust in providence, even when it might seem counterintuitive to us. But more practically, we have to recognize that we will never make progress in the Christian life if we continue to cling to the security that this world claims to offer, security in money and possessions. Just as I spoke of measuring someone by who they spend time with, we could equally measure a person by what they spend their time doing. As Catholics, do we find ourselves spending more time pursuing wealth and cultivating possessions than we do living and sharing our faith? Or do we have more anxiety about our worldly affairs than we do about the things of God? If so, we ought not to be surprised if our faith suffers. I remember once as a seminarian having dinner with a couple of priests from another diocese. That diocese at the time was making some changes. 
relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and the way priests were compensated and the way in which their pensions were funded. And this one priest held forth for close to an hour in minute detail about how the changes would affect him and his fellow priests, and whether these changes were fair or unfair. He was citing all kinds of calculations and statistics, and what if and what then eventualities. Yes, Christ said the laborer deserves his payment, but I remember thinking, I hope he's this knowledgeable and passionate about the gospel. Another piece of practical wisdom that Jesus offers to his disciples is this. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you. Do not move about from one house to another. The fact is, is that always striving for a better deal is spiritually destructive. There was a funny article in The Onion some time ago. Many of you are probably familiar with that website. And it was entitled this, Unambitious Loser with Happy Fulfilling Life still lives in his same hometown. It was, how, it was about how a group of friends from high school who had left their hometown to go to college and then moved away to the big city to pursue supposedly exciting careers looked down upon another high school friend who had stayed in his hometown, found a decent if unremarkable job, got married and was raising his family around the corner from his parents while they lived a life of high-priced consumption and unsatisfying relationships in a soul-crushing metropolis. There's an old expression, wherever you go, you take yourself with you. It's true that we don't need to accept every circumstance of our life as a given, especially if things are truly dysfunctional or dispiriting. But thinking that we can affect magical changes in ourselves just by acquiring the latest and greatest possession or, be, or by relocating ourselves to a new environment is spiritually destructive. Indeed, this tendency is destructive even when it is directed towards the faith itself. Without contradicting what I said before about the value of good Catholic friendships and recognizing again that some situations are truly problematic, one finds some Catholics engaged in a restless search for an ideal spiritual community or practice, the perfect parish, the perfect mass, the perfect priest. I'm sorry they don't exist. Another thing that Jesus tells his disciples is this, whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you. There's a danger that some Catholics put themselves in, no doubt with the best of intentions, in constantly seeking out debates and arguments with those who do not share our faith and morals. Certainly all of us are called upon to evangelize in some way, and that will mean at times having to give a spirited defense of the truth. Some might even have the vocation to engage in apologetics, but recognize the spiritual danger in constantly being on a war footing. The faith is nourished not in conflict, but in harmony with others. Sometimes we have to walk away from an argument with an unbeliever. Finally, the gospel says this. The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. But Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Yes, miracles do happen. But the central miracles of our faith are the church and her sacraments. Too often, we as Catholics can be overly focused on the extrinsic miracles 
rather than the miracles that constitute our redemption, especially baptism and the Eucharist. It is because of these mysteries and not others that our names are written in heaven. St. Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As Christians, we are called to be in the world, yet not of the world. That doesn't mean floating around like a Pollyanna. It takes a supreme measure of prudence and a savvy understanding of the world in order to avoid being worldly, to love the world without falling in love with the sins of the world. Thus, we must not avoid the practical lessons of the gospel as though they were only applicable in the time of Jesus. Jesus gives us not just the truth, but the way and the life. We must be as wise as serpents so that we might be as innocent as doves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.